Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth, for dogs encompass me, and, and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction or the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise the great, uh, in the great congregation. My vows I'll perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation." They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let's pray. Lord, we're just in awe of your word spoken thousands of years before Jesus would come, God. Lord, thank you for what this day means as we think about the cross, as we think about the sacrifice you've made. I pray that you would be with us tonight as we try to better understand that. And we remember what you've done for us. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want us to walk through some of the events of Good Friday briefly as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper tonight. The ordinance that Jesus ordained shortly before the events with his disciples at their last Passover Supper. 
The day is Friday. By the estimation of many scholars, it is April 3rd, circa A.D. 33. This is the darkest moment in human history, although most people at the time are just going about their day like normal across the world. People are, sh- are shopping, fishing, talking, laughing, and dying. But today, today one man will die and it will change history forever. The Word, the Way, the Truth, the Life, the Light of the World, the Manifestation of God, the Creator of all that is. John 1 tells us that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But this God-man will be executed today. And for a brief moment in history it will seem as if darkness has overcome the light. Now, late the night prior, Jesus was in the garden with the remaining eleven, and while they were sleeping, He was praying, speaking with His Father, our Father, as only a high priest really could. Hebrews tells us that in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Being designated by a God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, As Jesus was praying, a great commotion of troops approached the garden, marching in the light from the torches they carried to arrest the light of the world. A flurry of confusion and action takes place. Judas enters as the leader of the mob and betrays Jesus with a kiss. Peter lashes out and cuts off Malchus' ear, and Jesus' hands, which will be pierced for our transgressions in a matter of hours from here, are now stained with Malchus's blood. As the Prince of Peace heals the soldier that was prepared to attack him. The mob leads Jesus bound into Annas' house for a mafia-style interrogation while the manifestation of the very face that Moses so longed to look upon but could not is struck by the hands of some coward hidden in the darkness of night. A series of interrogations fails at landing a legitimate charge of any real crime. And finally, Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, implores Jesus, I adjure you, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes And said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? For now, you now have heard his blasphemy. But you see, in this time, people showed their grief and contempt whenever it reached the bottom of despair by doing this, by by tearing their clothes. But there was one that was not allowed to do this. According to Old Testament law, there is one who is not allowed to rend his garments. Leviticus 21.10 tells us the high priest, the one among his brothers who has the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. But why? Why is this a law? See, the high priest is the one man 
who is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, to enter the presence of God. One who is allowed to enter the presence of God should never reach utter and total despair, for he has everything he needs in God. And this is why the high priest was not allowed to rend his garments. But see, we too have the presence of God. By the priesthood of the believers, we have the Spirit of God, the presence of God, and should also never come to total despair. So by tearing his robes, Caiaphas has admitted his lack of faith in God and left Jesus most likely as the only man in the room wearing a seamless high priest robe. Now tragically, before the sun climbs over the hills of Jerusalem's eastern ridge, Peter has done what he swore he never would three times. Peter, a friend of Jesus, has sinned and betrayed the friend of sinners. Jesus and Peter exchange a glance. Now I'd say it's a safe bet that there was not righteous indignation in the eyes of the Savior as he looked upon Peter. But it was unconditional love. As the sun rises and gives way to the morning, Judas swings from his own belt. And it would have been better for him if he never would have been born. The Jewish leaders finally have the opportunity in the daylight for a proper trial before the Sanhedrin. And so this begins, Pilate's, uh, the, the, this begins at the Sanhedrin and the Pilate, the Roman governor, begin their political sparring match to decide Jesus' fate. While their fate truly rests in the hands of the king of kings, that is right there before them. In Pilate's futile attempt to wash his hands of Jesus, the crowd yells for Barabbas' release and Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus, the substitutionary, sacrificial lamb, takes the place of the murderous zealot as a foretelling of his substitutionary atonement that offers us salvation. This rabbi, who so gently healed lepers by a miraculous and radically personal touch... And lovingly offered redemption to sinners as he looked in their eyes the same way he had just looked into Peter's. Is in turn now beaten so mercilessly that from behind one could scarcely even recognize him as human. The son of man's head drips with a stinging mixture of sweat and blood for the second time since his prayer in the garden as a crown of thorns is mockingly placed and beaten into his head. Now we must go back to Genesis 3 and remember that these thorns came as a result of the curse after the fall. And then we look ahead to Galatians 3 and we see that Jesus becomes the curse so that we may fall more in love with him. Now days before... Jesus had entered on the prophesied cult and stirred this very city where he now marches bearing his own cross with the remarkably true accusation king of the Jews plastered above him in three different languages so all the onlookers could behold their true king of all kings. As he approached the hill called Golgotha, he was offered a cup mixed with wine and myrrh, a drug meant to dull the pain. But this was not the cup the Father has for him to drink, for he was to drink and taste in fullness the cup of his Father's wrath. As he is being hammered to this torture device, we must realize that the balance of existence rests in his hands as the nails go through them. The Son and the Father are one, and he spoke all of this into being, all of it. The mob, the garden where he prayed, the vine cursed with thorns that is beaten around his head, the tree that made the cross, the median nerves in his arms that will anguish with pain as the weight of his body rests on the nails in his wrist, the metatarsal bones in his feet that will bear his weight, 
when he pushes up for breath to speak, the centurions that are piercing his hands and feet, and at his word, all of this would cease to exist. But rather, he chooses to drink the Father's cup. This cup of the Father's wrath was ours to drink. We must recognize that we, that you, that I killed the author of life. Every one of our sins is a blatant act of treason and a rejection of God. On this Friday, though, the man's depravity reaches new depths in, his horrendous, in this horrendous and simultaneously gracious event. This is not some distant historical story just to be merely marveled at. This is on us. The cross is my fault. The Father's cup was mine to drink. When we look to the book of Acts, we see in Acts 2, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Acts 3, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Acts 4, whom you crucified. Acts 5, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. We killed the author of life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a sermon on Good Friday many years ago, said it this way. Good Friday is not the darkness that must necessarily yield to light. It is not the winter sleep that contains and nourishes the seed of life within. It is the day on which human beings, human beings who wanted to be like gods, kill the God who became human. The love that became person, the day on which the Holy One of God, that is God Himself, dies, truly dies, voluntarily and yet because of human guilt, without any seed of life remaining in Him in such a way that God's death might resemble sleep. Good Friday is not like winter, a transitional stage. No, it is genuinely the end, the end of guilty humanity and the final judgment that humanity has pronounced on itself. If God's history among human beings had ended on Good Friday, then the final pronouncement over humankind would be guilt, rebellion, the unfettering of all Titanic human forces, a storming of heaven by human beings, godlessness, God-forsakenness, but then ultimately meaninglessness and despair. And then your faith is futile. And then you are still in your guilt. And then we are of all people most to be pitied. That is the final word would be the human being. Left to ourselves... We are nothing, and we have nothing. If history ends with us, there is no hope. We have committed the greatest treason in the world, and we have no ability to attain retribution for our actions. If his story ends on Good Friday, there would be absolutely nothing good about it. Consider for a moment with me the eternity-altering grace that drives the prayer of the dying Christ on the cross when He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is unbelievable. This is amazing. 
without the unconditional love that only God can offer that drives this simple prayer, there would be absolutely nothing good about Good Friday. With this amazing love, we rest in His dying words until Sunday. It is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. Now, let us proclaim his death in taking the Lord's Supper. It was because Jesus drank in full the cup of the Father that we are able to observe and celebrate this cup of the new covenant. Let us observe the wages of our sin and look forward to Sunday as we will celebrate his victory over death. But let us recognize tonight that the good news doesn't make sense until we recognize the weight of the bad news. As a friend told me this week, I am the bad of Good Friday. Let that weigh on us. As we take Lord's Supper together, we will celebrate on Sunday. But let us grieve tonight how heinous our sin is that it required a killing of the creator of the universe. And that's on us. And it was only by his grace that he drank that cup of wrath so that tonight we can drink this cup and look forward to Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful that there is good news to this story. It is that good news that makes Good Friday good. But Lord, let us recognize tonight that there's nothing good about us. The worst thing that people may say about us or imagine about us doesn't even come close to how bad we really are. That we killed the author of life. And yet, in a grace that can't be understood, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let us recognize tonight how much we need you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We will pass out the elements here in a second, and we'll take it all together. Um, as the elements are passed around and you're preparing your hearts. Um, I know it was a dark message and uh, we've been talking about some dark things in John lately. And we will celebrate on Sunday in a big way. Uh, But we must recognize tonight the darkness of this story and that that is on us. It's disgusting in an upper room
uh, set up by the Lord and his disciples as they took uh, Passover. Jesus said to them, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As we reflect on the sombering events of Good Friday in preparation for Easter. I pray that it does rest on us heavy. In the midst of all of our struggles and distractions and frustrations in life, this is what matters. This is what matters, is that our sin brought creation to a point that this was necessary. And that our God loves us so graciously that he would do it. He didn't have to. But if the story ended here tonight on Friday, it wouldn't be good. But Sunday's coming. 